The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Major indexes managed to close out a positive week, responding to a better-than-expected ISM service report, which showed the service sector expanded for the second consecutive month. Meanwhile, Treasury yields pulled back below the 4% level reached earlier in the week. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck, Jim Welsh joins me from Macro Tides as we discuss the possibilities of a recession later this year and the continuation of a long-term secular bear market. After Jim, I'll be speaking with Ryan Sweet from Oxford Economics. Ryan is also in the recession camp. And finally today, we'll have a roundtable discussion between Chris Sheridan, Chris Paplava, and myself on the commodity bull market, higher oil prices later this year, the bond market, and much, much more. But first, let's find out this week's market moving events with Ryan Paplava. Ryan? You can chalk up the movement in stocks this week to a Bostic bounce. Atlantic Fed President Bostic, an FOMC voter this year, said on CNBC Thursday he favors a 25 basis point hike for the Fed funds rate this month, which has been his base case. While I didn't think this was that big of news, given he said on Wednesday he thinks the Fed should get to 5% to 5.25% and leave rates there well into 2024. Uh, given the Fed had slowed its pace down to a quarter point in February, I didn't think the base case had shifted all that much, despite the strong economic data we saw in, in February for January. Yes, a 50 basis point hike had increased in consideration, basically 0 to 30% chance, given the strong jobs data and inflation data we saw, which was echoed by a few hawkish Fed non-voters like Bullard and others. But nonetheless, just moments after the Boston comments, stocks began to rally. The rally could also be considered technical in nature as short-term readings were reaching oversold conditions after a month of selling and because there were important support levels for stocks and resistance levels being respected in bond yields. So all week, the S&P 500 had been flirting with its 50-day and 200-day moving averages. Thursday, the average briefly dipped below the 200-day moving average before rallying and never looking back. On the flip side, traders have been watching the 10-year Treasury yield at the psychological 4% level. Thursday, the long-term yield briefly broke above that 4% level after the Eurozone CPI was reported up 5.6% year-over-year, before reversing back below 4% on Friday to settle at 3.95%, further supporting higher stock prices. Looking at the S&P 500 sectors, materials outperformed this week up 4.2%, Industrials were up 3.3, energy up 3.1, technology up 3%, and communication services up 2.9 to lead the S&P 500. Defensive staples were down 0.2% and utilities were down half a percent. Economic results didn't play a great role this week in influencing market prices, but they continue to point towards inflationary pressure. Durable goods orders were up in January, 4.5% month to month with strength in non-defense capital goods, a proxy for business spending, and a factor in GDP, which were shipments, up 1.1% after falling in December. February consumer confidence fell to 102.9 from 106, 
with a bulk of the report stemming from consumers' short-term outlook on income prospects, which is cutting into expectations to buy homes, autos, and major appliances. Also, vacation intentions declined as well, which I found surprising. The ISM Manufacturing Index ticked up to 47.7, still a contraction reading. Activity contracted at a slow pace, and it did so with prices rising for the first time in four months. ISM services ticked down slightly to 55.1, but remained steady after that brief contraction reading in December and rally in January. Prices there also continue to rise in the report. In housing, pending home sales rose 8.1% in January. The December Case-Shiller Home Price Index was up 4.6% year-over-year, which is the lowest reading we've seen uh, in this indicator. And it had peaked earlier in the year, late spring, at around 21% versus a year ago. Lending Tree announced its earnings this week and had some visibility on the housing market with a surprise profit in the fourth quarter when expectations were for a loss. The issue is that the company issued downside guidance for the coming quarter with weak revenue guidance for the year. Revenue fell 50% year-over-year in the home segment. Revenue from home equity loans have jumped up 56% as residents tap their high equity levels without adjusting their longer-term low mortgage rates that they've locked in. Its decline in consumer credit revenue was less pronounced than the decline in mortgage revenue, only declining 11%. Higher rates are likely to continue to hurt revenue for the meaningful future. Now, coming up this month, the FOMC meeting on the 21st and 22nd with a decision that Wednesday, accompanied by the press conference, will be, I think, an important meeting to watch for. We expect to get the Fed's projections also for the year, something we call the dot plot. As the Fed has been signaling its desire to pause since October of last year, uh, we may see one to three more rate hikes as my base case at 25 basis points each hike. The projections will, I think, be very important in closing in on how many more hikes. And it will be interesting to see if the conversation shifts in the market from the Fed's outlook on its rates to the Fed's economic outlook for the year. To that end, we'll get the jobs number next week. It'll be an important economic number to follow off of that very hot January number we got in early February. All eyes will be on that report next Friday. But up next, we've got Jim Welsh, this week's guest technician. It hasn't even been a year since we saw the very first rate hike. And typically, it takes at least 12 to 24 months for changes in rates to flow through the broader economy. So it is just way too soon here to say that we've made it through without, you know, without any issues in this cycle. We aren't even yet at the one-year anniversary of the first rate hike. And the rate hikes really didn't even get aggressive until sort of the middle of last year. So it hasn't been enough time for us to digest the rise in rates that we've seen. So we would say that based off of even just looking at historical cycles, we're not expecting to see that big hit to employment from the rate hikes until the middle of this year. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. 
Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Joining us on the program is Jim Welsh from Macro Tides. Jim, you know, the ISM numbers just came out uh, this week, and just about every single category is contracting. And the one that really concerns me because of its uh, implications for the stock market and also corporate earnings is the new orders, which correlates closely with the S&P. I think this business cycle has been very unusual because of the pandemic. The fiscal and monetary response uh, to deal with it uh, has created distortions in some of the historical relationships, Jim, that we've all kind of gotten used to relying on. And one of those relationships has to do with manufacturing. Because historically, when manufacturing would turn negative and a leading indicator of a contraction in uh, manufacturing was provided by new orders. And that makes sense. You know, companies start pulling back on ordering new stuff because they're anticipating weakness in the economy. And historically, a contraction in new orders led to a contraction in manufacturing which also then was followed by uh, typically either a very, very soft economy or an outright recession. The thing I've discussed in the March uh, macro ties was that the bifurcation between supply and demand also applied to uh, goods and services. So what we saw after the you know federal government handed out five to six trillion dollars in 2020 and 2021, and yet people were locked up in their homes, basically. They ordered a lot of stuff, goods. And so we saw goods prices soar. And obviously, because of supply chain disruptions, uh, the delivery times got very, very stretched out and so forth. But once the economy reopened, Jim, we've seen a shift of spending uh, from goods to services. And that's what makes this business cycle, I think, unique. So last year, in the first two quarters, GDP was negative. New orders turned negative in June and July. And those two data points made everyone believe, oh, my God, we're headed toward a hard landing because the Fed is raising rates at 75 basis points a clip, which they had done in June and July. Um, And so everyone was on the hard landing scenario. Now, I pushed back against that because I thought consumers had a lot of money. They would keep spending. Employment growth was very, very solid. And you know, I my take was there would be no recession in 2022. Now, what we've seen, Jim, over the last six to nine months is goods prices have come down, which has relieved some of the inflationary pressures. Service prices are creeping higher because demand shifted from goods to services. So to answer your question, uh, you know, my take has been that a recession is coming. It's likely to come, I think, after mid-2023, and the shift we've seen between people worried about a recession last summer has given way, as you noted, to a soft landing. That was kind of like the, the fourth quarter. Well, maybe we can have a soft landing. And then in January, we saw retail sales come in very strongly. Jobs were over 500,000, uh, and a few other data points said, so, whoa, wait a second, the consumer is still pretty healthy in spending. And I'll, I'll cite one thing in terms of corporate CEOs. Uh, in During the pandemic, 
on second quarter earnings calls in 2020, 30% of CEOs referenced the word recession. By the time we got to the mid last year, it was up to 43%. So everyone was of the mindset, oh my goodness, we're going into recession. It's just a question of when is it going to start and how deep? But on fourth quarter earnings calls that have taken place over the last uh, four to six weeks, the percentage of CEOs even talking about a recession dropped to 12%. So to me, we've seen a big shift because everyone was looking for a hard landing last summer, give way to, oh, wait, maybe it won't be hard, it'll be soft. And then over the last month to, hey, there's not going to be a recession, no landing. And to me, it's classic how sentiment changes and perceptions change. And I I think the odds are very high. We're going to see a significant slowdown. In all likelihood, in the second half of this year, it will be a recession, which sets the financial markets up for, you know, an oh my goodness moment. Well, we went from recession last year, no recession. And all of a sudden, I think we're going to see data points as we get closer to mid-year really start to show more and more softening. And I think a recession starts later this year. So it's almost classic setting up the consensus view to be wrong, just like it was wrong last summer in terms of looking at uh, and expecting a recession. Um, uh, and now they're not. And lastly, I'll say manufacturing is very important, but it's about 15% of GDP. Uh, services are close to 70% of GDP. So that the dichotomy, if you will, between uh, you know money flowing into goods, shifting to services, in prior cycles, going back the last 50 years, hey, once money stopped going into goods, it was because rates were higher, the economy was slowing, and it also stopped flowing into uh, services. That you know What's happened in this cycle is a bifurcation because of all the money the government distributed and the pandemic, you know, making people stay at home, not going out. But once they were able to, Hey, I'm not, you know, I've already bought everything online <laughs> that I need. So we pulled forward a lot of demand, uh, you know, from the future uh, in 2021 and early 2022. And now we're seeing the spending go to services. So I think we're going to see the economy hold up for a period of time. But I, as I've said, I think by the second half of this year, we're going to see a very pronounced slowing and that will raise risks anew and concerns that, oh, my goodness, we are going to have that recession after all. All right. Let me bring up the next question, because Wall Street is hoping for a Fed pivot. You know, Wall Street loves liquidity. It drives up markets. Uh, The futures market has another quarter point this month. And uh, looking like the Fed may take it up to about five, five and a half. But instead of pivoting, I'm more in the camp that they're probably going to pause. What's your view? I agree with you, Jim. That's been my, you know, Powell and company have been extraordinarily straightforward in telling us what their intent is. And the other thing that's been very noteworthy is the uniformity in all the speeches that people give that are members of the FOMC. Um, You know, in prior times, you'd get some divergence of opinion. That hasn't been the case since the second quarter of last year. So in September, they said they're going to 4.6 on the funds rate. Uh, December, they raised it to 5.1, uh, and I think they are going to nudge it a little bit higher. But both in September and December, they said, once we get up there, we're going to hold it there. And the logic here, 
Jim, really, uh, the you know, Powell and others have said, we want to avoid the mistakes of the 1970s. So what happened in late, you know, 69, 70 to the end of uh, the 70s, the Fed would jam on the brakes, keep raising interest rates, and they would go too far. The economy would go in a recession, and then they were forced to cut rates. And so, yeah, there were recessions, but they didn't last long enough to really bring inflation down. So what the Fed has been telling us for months and months is we want to get to a restrictive, modestly restrictive level and then hold it there so that all the prior tightenings can kind of catch up into the economy and ideally cause uh, you know a pronounced slowdown in the economy without really tipping it into a recession that would require the Fed to uh, reverse course. So they've been telling us that for months and months. I agree with you. The Fed wants to get to that level. There's no precise um, you know, formula to determine, well, what is the modesty res- restricted level? Um, I think the area between five and a quarter to five and a half is likely. The other thing that we've seen, Jim, which is going to be interesting, uh, you know, for months and months, you know, after September, after the December meeting, Wall Street ships, oh, no, not, they're not going to go to 5.1. They're going to go to four and seven eighths. And then in the second half of 2023, they're going to bring the funds rate down by 50 basis points even though the Fed was saying, no, we're not going to do that. Um, now what we've seen is with the strong data that's come out and then with the inflation news ticking higher, which I wrote about in February, my my expectation was that we were going to see inflation tick higher in the month of January and that it would kind of be unsettling. But what we've seen now is Wall Street is saying, oh yeah, we're going to raise you that. Now we think you're going to 540 and Fed funds futures have it priced for the rest of the year. So I think there's a chance, Jim, that Next Friday, we get the employment report. And then on the 14th, we get the CPI. Uh, I think those two numbers are going to come in and, in a sense, cause Wall Street to pull back a little bit. They've been looking for a 50 basis points hike at the March 22nd meeting. I think it's more likely the Fed will go 25 basis points. Again, the idea being is let's not push too hard to tip the economy into a recession we have to respond to. Let's nudge the funds rate up a little bit gradually and as we try to find that restrictive level. And I think the trade-off for the those who want to do 25 versus there is a number of Fed members that want to go 50 will be, okay, we'll go 25, but we're going to raise the target rate from 5.1 to 5.4. Um, I think that'll be the dynamics inside that meeting. So with the street expecting a 50 basis point, or at least, you know, to some extent worried about it, that lays open the opportunity, I think, for a rally in equities in response as people say, oh, thank goodness they're not going 50. It doesn't change the bigger picture of a recession coming in the second half of this year. But near term, I think the market's worried about all this stuff. And if indeed we get the job number going from 500,000 to probably 200,000, maybe a touch less, the uh, CPI when it comes out is going to, you know, the annual rate is going to drop from 6.4 to maybe 6.1. All that I think will provide some relief rallies uh, for yields to come down temporarily, the stock market to rally a little bit. Um, And, you know, it's really kind of a psychological game (laughs) to some extent. But it has been amazing to see the shift in perception about, you know, what the economy would do from last summer and also Wall Street's perceptions of what the Fed would do. And now they're, they've become almost like overbelievers. And I just think that they're anticipating more than what the Fed is likely to deliver 
at the March 22nd meeting. Well, let me take that a step further. Given the fact that you and I both think a recession is coming, Jim, in the last couple of years, the deficit increased by $9.5 trillion in three years. And for our listeners to put that in perspective, it took 43 presidents from Washington to George W. Bush to get to $9.5 trillion. We just did that in three years. So if we go into a recession, given the stimulus that we've seen so far, what do they do to get us out? I mean, uh, I, I've never seen money spending like this. Do we come up with another get us out of a recession bill in massive new spending? It's possible. Uh, again, 2024 is going to be an election year. No politician wants to run uh, while unemployment is ticking higher and higher. So I think as we get into 2024, if the recession call proves accurate, and again, uh, Wall Street's not priced for a significant slowdown even. So I think at a minimum, we'll see at least one quarter of negative GDP growth, Jim. We'll see the unemployment rate tick from three, four up to over 4% on its way to four and a half. And I just think, you know, like anybody, you go you, re, uh, muscle reflexes, right? Or muscle memory. Oh, well, whenever this has happened, we've always uh, done something to stimulate the economy. I can't anticipate that politicians are going to do anything other than what they've historically done. So I, I think they will come down with the idea that we need to stimulate the economy and so forth, because that's what they, that's the only thing they really know how to do. So given this, how would you be playing this from an investment point of view? The one thing that I say, Jim, for probably the first time in two decades, I mean, T-bill rates over 5%. Gosh, it's been a couple decades since I've seen anything like that. Uh, yeah, 1907, I think. <laughs> no, 2007. Pardon me. I just was off by 100 years. Um, no, you're 100% right. And for a long time, you know, rates near zero offered uh, equity uh, valuations, no competition. At 5%, you're right. For most people, it's like, oh, my goodness, I can't. Uh, is this for real? So, yeah, there is true competition. And I think the real problem that the stock market will face is now that they're thinking there won't be a recession, if we see pronounced slowing leading to a recession, earnings are going to get cut. Historically, when that starts to happen, P.E. ratios compress. Uh, I think the average, the, the highest the S&P's P.E. ratio has ever been during a recession is 14. So if earnings go from 225, which is about where most people are at, down to under uh, 200, you know, all of a sudden you're talking with the S&P down between 2,800 to 3,200. That's the risk. And I think as we, you know, as we know, what typically happens is the surprise moment when the economy starts to slow. Oh, my goodness. I guess we are going to have a recession. That's when you see a pronounced period of weakness. But I think for anyone who's patient, uh, it will provide a pretty good buying opportunity because, as we just talked, what is Congress likely to do if there's any kind of a meaningful slowdown? They're going to do what they can to stimulate growth. And the Fed, at some point, could be forced to lower rates modestly. So all that you know provides the market uh, a chance to have a very strong rebound. I just think there's a valley <laughs> between today and when that time comes. So I think being patient and enjoying the yields that are available makes sense. I'm a firm believer in contrary opinion, Jim, whereas when everyone is bullish, it's time to start to look for cracks in all the reasons that the bulls are citing. And, you know, to me, what will happen here is the pendulum will swing again. 
when the economy slows enough, people are going to get pretty negative. There'll be a big increase in selling. And that's the time to, again, be a contrarian and look to be a buyer when everybody else is you know, reacting to the news that they should have seen coming. Well, I couldn't agree more, Jim. Hey, listen, as we close, I, I love reading your newsletters because you cover both technical aspects, but more importantly, macro and fundamental aspects of the market. How can our listeners find out more about your work, Jim? Uh, macrotides.com or I'm more than happy, Jim, uh, to uh, send uh, your faithful listeners a recent macro tides. Uh, and I also have a special report, the coming secular bear market that I've got a lot of nice feedback on. Uh, send an email to jimwelshmacro at gmail, and I'll be happy to send uh, those reports out to you. And I think you'll find them pretty informative. Well, listen, Jim, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. I'll look forward to talking to you once again. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks and stay well. So lately, a lot of the Wall Street chatter has been, is the economy accelerating again? Many people see chances of soft landing being higher than what people saw last year. So we've also did a lot of deep dives into these topics. And here's what we found. That model still says 100% recession. And then we also look at uh, recession probabilities implied by yield curves. So all those yield curves are also saying elevated and in fact increased probability of recession. And in particular, Powell's preferred yield curve has spiked dramatically. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, there is emerging thoughts on Wall Street regarding the economy this year. It's breaking down into three camps, hard landing, soft landing, or no landing. Well, how will this play out at the end of the year? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Ryan Sweet. He's Chief U.S. Economist at Oxford Economics. So given from your perch, Ryan, how do you see this playing out? Which camp are you in? Well, there's definitely going to be some sort of landing. I think it boils down to either a hard or soft landing. And I don't want to be a two-handed economist, but I think there's the possibility that either one could play out. Our baseline forecast, which is the most likely outcome, is that it's a little bit of a hard landing, a very bumpy landing. And we're going to experience, you know, a mild recession starting, you know, in the second half of this year. But, you know, there is a lot of upside risk to our forecasts. And that really centers around the U.S. consumer. The U.S. consumer, given the strength of the labor market, you know, this excess savings, you know, a diminished, you know, wealth effect from the stock market and the housing market has really held up 
better than you know what I anticipated so far this year. But I think the conditions for a recession are starting to fall in place. You have tech past tightening in financial market conditions. You have a Fed that is laser focused on killing something, whether it's inflation or the economy or maybe both. But I think those are going to most likely start to bite heavily into the economy over the next several months. And you know, I think a mild downturn is more likely than a soft landing. I think hopefully we're wrong because I'm not rooting for a recession, but you know, it's very difficult for the Fed to pull off a soft landing from a historical perspective. And what about the issue of government spending? I mean, the Biden administration has authorized, what, I think, $7.5 trillion of new spending. How much of that, Ryan, is keeping this economy afloat? I mean, that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but it's not having a huge economic impact. You know, a lot of that government spending is necessary. So it's the net change in spending from year to year that matters for consumer or for economic activity. We have, you know, government, both federal and state and local, being a small positive for growth this year, but you have to squint to see, you know, the impact on overall GDP. What really matters is the consumer, which is about 70% of consumer spending or the 70% of the economy, business investment, which is doing okay, but you know, reading the tea leaves and looking at leading indicators suggests that that's about to roll over. And business investment is usually the first to start declining noticeably before a recession takes hold. And then the consumer follows because, you know, as businesses cut back on investment, they're also going to cut back on people's hours worked, also reduce the number of people employed. And that's going to push the unemployment rate higher. And once the unemployment rate starts rising, people run for the bunker because they see, you know, their friends or family getting laid off and they get worried about their job security. So that influences their spending behavior. Now, what also about the impact of inflation? Because, you know, if you live in California, I don't know what it's like for you, Ryan, but in California, natural gas bills have more than doubled. Utility bills are up. We're getting power outages. And I don't care if it's food, if it's medical premiums, utilities, gasoline, everywhere you look, costs are going up. How much of an impact is that having on consumers? It's having a big impact. So inflation is affecting everyone, but you know everyone's spending basket or the things that they buy, you know, goods and services is different. So your consumption basket is going to be different than mine. My wife's is different than her friends. But still, when you look on average, the average household is spending about four hundred dollars per month more this year to buy the same basket of goods as last year, and that's an enormous burden. And this is what one thing that I'm most concerned about is that low to mid-income households have exhausted all their excess savings. And excess savings is essentially the additional money that consumers have, you know, either in their checking account, under their mattress, maybe it's buried in the backyard, the additional cash that they have relative to pre-pandemic saving patterns. So right now in aggregate, so one and a half trillion dollars, which sounds like a big number, and it is, but a lot of that is with mid to high income households. And they're more likely going to treat that as wealth than cash. So they're not going to spend it. But low income households have really burnt through that excess savings. Therefore, they don't have a big buffer. So if something else goes wrong, if energy prices spike, they don't have that cushion to lean on to keep up their spending. So that keeps me up at night a little bit that I'm worried about low income households. But inflation definitely matters. And that's why you see the Fed committed to bringing inflation back down to their 2% target 
over time. It's not going to be next month or even this year, but over the next couple of years, given the amount of rate increases, you know, you're going to see inflation start to really moderate. And that's what the Fed wants. But the economy's got to cooperate. You know, the labor market needs to cool. Nominal wage growth needs to slow down. My prices need to continue to remain relatively unchanged or decline to really help reduce inflation from you know, where we are today to where the Fed wants it to be, which is around 2%. Now, what about the Fed pivot? Uh, Wall Street seems to think, or they're hoping for a pivot. They pivot at the end of the year. Ryan, what about the possibility that they continue to raise, they get it, I don't know, the Fed funds rate to five and a quarter, five and a half, instead of pivot, they just pause and leave it there. I think the most likely outcome is that the Fed gets the Fed funds rate five and a quarter by June, uh, the June meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, and then they opt to pause. And it's going to be an extended pause because, again, you know, the Fed really wants to see clear evidence that inflation is definitively moving towards their 2% objective. Uh, and they're not going to cut unless you know, something goes really wrong in the economy, unless you know, the recession that we're forecasting looks a little bit more severe because the Fed is essentially facing Hobson's choice, which is you know, the better of two bad outcomes, a mild recession now, or the potential for stagflation, which is a combination of high unemployment, high inflation, which is a central bank's worst nightmare down the road. So I think if you put Fed Chair Jerome Powell's feet to the fire, he would opt for a mild recession because at least historically, they're very disinflationary. And there's no glaring imbalance in the economy. Therefore, any downturn would be pretty modest. But you know, I think that's kind of the situation that the Fed is finding themselves in. They don't like to paint themselves into a corner, but I think market expectations, I think they're a little bit ahead of themselves in the sense that if you look at inflation swaps, they expect inflation to come down much more quickly than I think the consensus among economists is for inflation this year and next. Therefore, they're anticipating the Fed cutting interest rates, but I think it's more likely that the Fed you know, raises rates to where they want it to be and then you know, kind of takes vacation and pauses for an extended period of time. In our forecast, we don't have set cutting interest rates until early 2024. So on another issue, what is the likelihood that they raise rates and we have some kind of financial accident? I mean, the economy, there's a lot of leverage, the consumer level, the corporate level, and of course, government level as well. What are the chances they raise them and all of a sudden we have a financial mishap? That's a risk, but it's I think it's unlikely because when you decompose the economy's balance sheet and look at households, non-financial corporate balance sheets, state local governments, and the federal, the only one that's really a mess is the federal government's balance sheet. And that's not a macroeconomic issue. You know, they're going to pay their bills. We're most likely going to see a nasty debt ceiling fight, you know, in June, July, or August. But that's unlikely going to be enough to have significant macroeconomic events unless the debt ceiling is breached for an extended period of time. We've seen this movie before. It's a bad movie, but we know the ending. And they're going to suspend the debt ceiling at the 11th hour. But non-financial corporate balance sheets, they're solid. And the household balance sheets in aggregate, you know, I'm still concerned about low-income households, but in aggregate, they're in very, very good shape. So even with interest rates rising, 91% of mortgages are fixed. Therefore, you know, Jim, I doubt your mortgage or my mortgage, I know for a fact my mortgage has not changed, even though the Fed has raised interest rates by 450 basis points. So that's kind of cushioning 
the blow to consumer spending and the broader economy. And one reason why the transmission mechanism between monetary policy and the economy has likely weakened is that a lot of debt that consumers are holding is fixed. You see a lot of headlines about the level of consumer debt, you know, particularly credit card debt, but it's not the level that matters. It's the monthly payment. So most people can probably tell you, you know, probably down to the penny what their car payment is or their mortgage payment is, but they don't know what's the outstanding balance on that car payment or their house. You know, I can tell you for a fact, I don't know, you know how much is left on my mortgage, but it's those monthly payments. As long as those payments remain in check, household balance sheets are going to remain in really good shape. So if you look at debt service ratios or financial obligation ratios, which are proxies or measures of the cost of financing the debt that consumers face, they're still among the lowest since the 1980s. And given the strength of the labor market, you know, solid, decent gains in nominal wage growth, you know, consumers are able to pay their bills. And I think that's one reason why you've seen the consumer be a little bit more resilient than I think what a lot of economists anticipated late last year and so far this year. Yeah, Barron's just ran an article on that talking about, you know, corporations were able to refinance their debt at lower levels, lock in those low rates, as did consumers on their mortgages. A final question, if I may, in your opinion, Ryan, what could go right and what could go wrong? A lot of things can go right and a lot of things can go wrong. Things that could go right is the labor market softens, but we don't see a significant increase in the unemployment rate. Essentially, the Fed is able to raise interest rates, pool the economy enough where the demand for labor comes down, but those that are laid off find new work very, very quickly. And that's what we've seen so far. And that's why I think the path is narrow, but the Fed's still on a path to a possible soft landing where they return inflation to the 2% target without pushing the economy into a recession. So I think that's one thing that could go right. Another upside risk is that that I'm wrong in the sense when it comes to excess savings and that high-income households spend some of that. You know, We only need about a third of that to be spent to keep the economy out of a recession this year and next year. So I think that's another risk, upside risk. And then on the downside, I think, of course, the debt ceiling. You know, maybe this time is a little bit different. As an economist, we never like to say this time is different, but we could see maybe a nastier debt ceiling fight or a government shutdown. A partial government shutdown reduces GDP by about tenth of a percentage point per week. So the economic cost can increase quite significantly. Another downside risk is that China's reopening is more inflationary from a commodity price perspective than what we're anticipating. So if we see oil prices go up or gas, which would put gasoline prices up, that would put a significant burn on the US economy. A good rule of thumb is every penny change in gasoline prices either increases or reduces consumer spending by one and a half billion dollars over the course of a year. So again, the economic cost of an oil price shock rises very, very quickly. So we're doing this interview on a Tuesday. The ISM numbers come out by the end of the week. Do you expect them to go lower than last reported? It's an ISM survey for the manufacturing and non-manufacturing, we'll get both of them this week, measures the breadth of growth in either manufacturing or non-manufacturing. Uh, and our forecast is for both of them to continue to weaken a little bit. The ISM manufacturing survey is actually south of its neutral threshold of 50, but it's not at its recessionary threshold. It's got to be in the low 40s for that to occur. 
There are some troubling details. So for example, new orders in manufacturing, they've dropped quite noticeably over the last several months. And kind of getting back to our earlier part of the discussion, you know, manufacturer business investment in software equipment typically turns first. And that's kind of what the new orders is signaling is that some weakness is coming for business investment. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that. But right now it signals, you know, if you take the overall message from both ISM surveys is that the economy is starting to show signs of stress, but it's not breaking. In other words, we're bending, but we're not breaking yet. But we are vulnerable to anything else that goes wrong. And we might need a little bit of luck to avoid a recession, but whether or not it's a recession this year or not, you know, because there's the scenario where our forecast for a peak to trough decline in GDP of roughly 1%, you know, one to one and a half percentage point increase in the unemployment rate could be spot on. But the National Bureau of Economic Research, who's the de facto arbiter of recessions in the US, may not date that as a recession because there's not many recessions where you have an unemployment rate south of 5%. But still, it's going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to feel like a recession to a lot of people because, you know, unfortunately, we expect the unemployment rate to go up. Therefore, you know, people are going to lose their jobs. And I think it's really important to always remember that when we look at these economic numbers and statistics on employment, for example, that there's people behind these numbers. And even if it's not technically a recession, it's going to feel like one for a lot of people this year, unfortunately. All right. Well, listen, Ryan, as we close, if our listeners want to follow your work at Oxford Economics, tell them how they could do so. Yeah, you can visit our website, OxfordEconomics.com. So Oxford Economics is an independent economic advisory firm. We do a lot of economic forecasting, as you probably heard from our conversation, but we do a lot of economic research as well. And we forecast almost every single country globally. So, but the most important thing is that we're an independent advisory firm. So we're neutral. You know, we read the economic tea leaves and that tells us where where we think the economy is headed. All right. Well, listen, Ryan, as always, pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to talking to you once again. Welcome, everyone, to today's Big Picture. Today, we're going to be joined by Jim and Chris Baplava, our president and CIO here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. Jim, I want to start off with you. You wrote an article in April 2020, just about three years ago, talking about how we were going to go from an energy glut to an energy crisis. And we have certainly seen that over the past couple of years now. We did see oil prices get up to a high of $122 last year, but they have since pulled back and been in somewhat of a downtrend. Question to you is, do you believe in this bullish oil thesis that you presented in 2020 still? And where do you think oil prices are heading from here? I still believe in that, Chris. And a lot of the what we're seeing in the oil markets, a lot of this is short-term hearsay. Like today, there was a story oil was down because there's a possible split or breakup of OPEC. Uh, a lot of this is just short-term noise. But one of the main reasons I felt that oil prices were heading higher back in 2020 is what happened to the oil markets after 2014 when we had the Saudi oil wars. Basically, all major companies stopped investing in production, not uh, not necessarily production, but exploration. So they cut back their exploration budgets. I think the IA said they were down by almost 50%. Well, if you're in the oil business and you're pushing oil barrels out the front door, you better be bringing oil into the back door. And that's going to come from exploration, new discoveries. 
And that has been in decline for almost a full decade now. So that was one of the big reasons. The other thing is I was a big believer in peak oil, especially in the 00 decade. And a lot of that came with my friendship with Matt Simmons, uh, who was the founder of Simmons International. He wrote the book Twilight in the Desert, where he made uh, the proposition that Saudi oil production had peaked. In fact, if we look at their largest oil field, Garwar, which used to produce roughly about 5 million barrels a day, it's down to about 3. But then we had shale. We had horizontal drilling. We had fracking. We discovered shale. And U.S. production went from 5 million barrels to, by 2019, the U.S. was the world's largest energy producer. Well, a lot of that was shale because regular conventional oil production in the U.S. now is down to about 3 million barrels. So shale bailed the U.S. But more importantly, shale or U.S. shale has been the single largest growth factor in meeting world oil demand. If it wasn't for U.S. shale, we'd be much higher oil prices today. So what you have going on right now is you've had some of the two biggest shale fields, the Bakken, the Eagle Ford, are now in decline. And the shale fields are exhibiting much of the same Hubbard curves of rapid exploration and production. In the early years, you hit a peak, and then the production starts to decline. It's called depletion. And there are many experts, including some of the ones you've had on your show, Adam Rosenswag, who believe that Perpian production is very close to peaking within the next couple of years. So outside of U.S. shale, there really hasn't been any growth factors for oil. So if you look at non-OPEC world production, that peaked in 2006, and OPEC oil production peaked in 2015. So OPEC production is down about 4 million barrels. So back out U.S. shale, and we would not be where we are today. So that's why I think that you're going to see, I think your your friend Rosenzweig and Goring are right. I think you're going to see in the next couple of years the Permian Basin peak. And when that happens, you'll start, we will start talking about higher prices and about peak oil again. We're not there yet, uh, but the world is focusing on other factors. The other issue that I have is the IEA and EIA estimates on demand have been wrong almost every single year. They have to up what we actually consume. I think it's estimated that this year oil consumption will go up by, what, something like 1.3 million barrels. So I do, Chris, expect oil prices to get back up close to 100 by the time we get to the end of the year. I'd like to add to that. Um, not only are we kind of seeing a peak in production rates, I think we're also seeing a peak in productivity, which I believe is related to production. Uh, one of the things, uh, Bloomberg has a, a great database on data for the U.S. energy companies. And wh what they look at is the amount of barrels that come per rig. And they're looking at new wells. And what you saw in the uh, latter part of the 2000s was roughly around maybe 50, 75 barrels per, per rig. And then we had the explosion of the shale revolution. And we went from, let's say, 50 to 75 uh, rigs per well all the way up to nearly 800 by 2016. And then we had even further advances in, the, uh, in uh, 2019 and 2020. However, if you look at the uh, number of barrels that are coming per rig, that peaked in, I would say, early 21 at roughly 1,400 barrels per rig. 
we're now down to uh, just over 900. So we are seeing a drop off in productivity and that means that to get the same amount of oil we're going to have to be drilling more wells. So I think it's not just uh, in terms of production, I think it's even in terms of productivity that we've seen a peak. Yeah, and this goes back to, Chris, we had uh, Professor Charles Hall who came up with the concept energy return on investment. And we're seeing that decline. In other words, uh, we're not getting as much per drill bit. We're not getting the, uh, as Chris mentioned, the productivity, but also the return on drilling results that we used to get. So, uh, you know, it's like a lot of these companies, and especially we're seeing it in the shale play, they've been high grading. In other words, they've been going after their most productive wells first. As you see this in mining, where a lot of times during soft prices, miners will go to their high grade because they can make a profit on it. And what leaves what's left is the low grade, which costs more to produce. And I think that's where we're at in the oil business today. So, Chris, I'd like to get your take on this idea. You know, as we started off discussing with the show today, Jim, you began making this thesis for a, a new secular bull market, not just in energy, but in hard assets in general. Uh, this was something when you were talking about in early 2020 about predicting this next big wave of inflation. Investors need to prepare for that. That's what we're doing at our company. We have now seen softness in the commodity sector. Nothing obviously grows to the sky, and there are periods of consolidation. From your vantage point, Chris, where do you see us in this process of a secular bull market? Is that the thesis that you're holding to? And if so, where are we currently with that? I'm very much in agreement with Jim that uh, we probably have uh, began a secular bull market in commodities that started in 2020. This also was something that I wrote about in the fall of 2020, uh, calling for a generational buying opportunity in commodities. And I was looking at it from the sense of over or under investment. And the way I was going about that was looking at household financial assets. And what we can see is that we have, you know, households invest in equity and real estate. They have uh, fixed income. They have um, cash holdings and they have uh, stock holdings as well. And what I was showing was how when you get to a bubble in stocks, bonds or real estate, it tends to be where the asset class is over owned and you kind of reach an extreme. We saw that in housing in 2005, and in 2010, we basically had a generational buying opportunity in housing where the amount of equity uh, in real estate as a percentage of household financial assets hit an all-time low. And we have data going back to the uh, early 1950s. And I was using that as an analogy to kind of look at commodities. And a way that I was measuring that was not from the Fed's flow of funds uh, household report, but was looking at it in terms of the commodity price index versus the stock index using the S&P 500 as an example. And I was looking at the Goldman Sachs commodity index relative to the S&P 500. And you could essentially see these huge spikes where that was marked by commodity bubbles and peaks. And then these exceptionally low troughs, which were the beginning points of secular bull markets in commodities. And what I was highlighting was that at the time, in the fall of 2020, we reached the lowest level in more than a half century. For example, the ratio of, of commodities versus stocks was lower than in 2000, when we had a, about an 8 to 11 year run in commodities. And it was even lower than the beginning of the 1970s, which had a phenomenal run in commodities as well. 
So from that standpoint, I, I agree that we have a long ways to go in terms of looking at the commodity sector as you know being near the end. I think there's a lot of runway ahead of us. Another way of looking at this, Chris, is by looking at the weight of a sector or industry as a percent of the index. And when we look at energy, for example, relative to the S&P 500, at its peak in 2008, it was roughly around, I would say, 15 to 16% of the entire S&P. But in the beginning of that bull market, energy was roughly, I would say, around 5 maybe 6%. Well, in 2020, energy fell from a high of 17 to 16% in 2008 to a low of roughly just under 3% in 2020. That was the lowest level that we have seen with data going back to 1990. So that was a three-decade low, even half of what it was at the start of the 2000 run-up in commodities. And at our current rate of roughly 5%, we're not even back to the average weighting of the energy sector in terms of the S&P 500. You can contrast that to the tech sector, which is roughly about 33% of the S&P back in 2000 at the bubble. Uh, recently in uh, 21, going into 22, we were roughly about 30% again. So the tech sector, to me, was the bubble and the opportunity where it was in commodities. So, Jim, on this larger conversation about a secular bull market in commodities again, which was something that we had really doubled down on in 2020, and we've been continuing to make that argument as up until today, as Chris, you were just talking about, you know, I remember back in the tech bubble of 2000, you know, you wrote a series of different reports warning how the tech bubble was going to implode. Uh, that was your perfect storm series, which in itself was was a book given how long it was. Uh, I think it was like a 30 part series on our Financial Sense website. But after the tech bubble imploded, you know, you started writing about switching into hard assets and commodities again. This was in the early 2000s. And you wrote a series of articles, The Next Big Thing, Silver and Undervalued Catalyst. But the question I have to you is, you know, we're in a different cycle now, right? So we saw the 2020 COVID crash. And now after we saw that big rebound in economic activity, which of course did lift commodities along with inflation, there's fears again of a recession. How do you fit a secular bull market in commodities within the context of entering into a recession, potentially in the second half, as many strategists on our show have been saying? Well, I mean, let's take a look at the OO decade. The big driver of commodities in the OO decade was the emergence of China as a manufacturing and industrial powerhouse. We were outsourcing a lot of our manufacturing companies were moving manufacturing to China. And as China expanded, that drove this huge demand for commodities. And during that period of time, Chris, we had a recession in the year 2000. We had another one, uh, the Great Recession from, let's say, 2007 to 2009. But despite that, we still saw higher oil prices. We saw higher gold prices, higher silver prices, higher copper prices, because demand was there. The difference now is we had, just like in the oil sector, we've had an underinvestment by mining companies. That's number one. You take a look at uh, number two, inventory levels of major commodities. I don't care if it's copper, it's silver, it's cobalt, it's lithium, it's aluminum. The stocks of these key strategic materials have been in decline. And what is one of the big drivers this time is not only shortages because of lack of investment, similar to oil, but secondly, it is going to be ESG 
in the green policies. You know, green takes raw materials. And three is banana green policies. I mean, good luck trying to open up a mine. Uh, we've shut down mines in Maine for cobalt. We've shut down copper mines in Minnesota. Uh, it takes, if you were to go out and make a discovery today, it would take you maybe 10 years at the soonest to bring that mine into production by the time you go through your environmental impact studies, you go through the court system. And so what's driving this next commodity super cycle is number one, commodity shortages, and number two, this transition to a green economy. Windmills, solar panels, EVs require raw materials. And quite honestly, right now, the dominance in raw materials is China. They control rare earths. They control a lot of the strategic materials that we need to go green. You take a look at a solar panel or windmill, most of that comes from China. And so we have allowed not only China to dominate manufacturing, but we've also allowed them to dominate and secure the supply of key strategic materials. So those are going to be the big drivers in this decade. And like I said, it takes 10, sometimes 20 years to bring a mine into production. And even in the mining sector, just like depletion that you have in oil, a lot of these miners now are going to their low grade because during the tough times when prices were weak, they were high grading. They were going to their most uh, highly productive deposits and mining that first because they can make a profit. So I see this continuing, and that's going to be the driver that could take us well into the next decade. Chris, I wonder if you could touch upon what is our view and outlook for a recession, and then secondly, how we typically see commodities behave in a recession, and what you're kind of preparing for uh, as CIO when it comes to either increasing our exposure to the commodity sector moving forward or how you would be navigating this from an investment standpoint. Well, Chris, my, my current view of the economy and also the financial markets is I, I don't, I'm not forecasting a major recession, you know, similar to, you know, the deep 74, 75 recession or the 2008 recession. I, you know, personally, I'm thinking more of a mild recession. The reason why is we did have a lot of uh, stimulus cushion that is going to help the economy. And further, we're still dealing with the labor shortage. And yeah, I do believe we're going to see the unemployment rate move up. I just don't think it's going to be a, a massive spike in unemployment because I don't think the economy is going to retrench that much. And because uh, there has been a shortage of labor, it's one of the biggest problems since the recovery began. So I don't really see employers slashing payrolls aggressively. But that's not to say the financial markets can't correct significantly. Um, a good example of this where the severity of a downturn could really fluctuate between the, uh, the Main Street and Wall Street is the tech bubble. You know, the, the tech bubble began in 2000 when it burst and it carried out all the way into 2003. And the S&P roughly lost about half of its value. However, the 2001 recession was, was quite mild in contrast where it was basically a retrenchment in business spending. And it was short. I believe it was from March of 2001 to November of 2001. So it was a relatively short recession, and it was not that deep. However, as I stated before, we had a pretty significant decline in financial markets. And I still think when you look at the financial markets, I think stocks still look fairly uh, expensive. I don't think valuations have come down enough to 
present the argument that a definitive bottom is in. And so I do see some significant weakness in the markets at some point this year as it becomes apparent that corporate earnings are too high and that we are going to be slipping into a downturn. Now, that said, as I mentioned, I don't think we're going to have a very severe economic downturn. If we're not going to have a severe economic downturn, then I would have to believe that demand for commodities would not have a significant retrenchment. Further, we also have China, which is reopening after three years of severe lockdowns. So it just so happens that, you know, the expression when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, usually it's the U.S. that drags everyone down and that we also pull everyone out. Well, that's not the case this time if we do go into a downturn. It's, we already have China, which is reaccelerating from its stimulus and going back into reopening that I think could also help to soften any hit to commodity demand. So I think, in my opinion, Chris, any hit to commodities this year will be a buying opportunity. Even in a recession, there was this talk also uh, as it applies to oil. Well, it turned out as economies weaken around the globe, which is what we saw in 2022, we're seeing it right now, oil demand is still expected to pick up. And so we're still, remember all the incentives and all the spending packages, uh, Biden's green energy package, uh, the Green New Deal that was pushed through as called the inflation bill. There is a lot of money that is being pushed through through government spending that is going to drive this demand for solar panels, wind, EVs. That is still taking place. I mean, you're talking about seven and a half trillion dollars of new spending that came in. And just the Biden administration alone uh, that is pushing its way through the economy. And I think that's one reason why the economy held up much better than it has Another thing that has held up much better is when interest rates were down very low. Remember, about a year ago, 10-year treasuries were at about a half a percent. Well, a lot of consumers, including corporations, refinanced their debt. So they were able to lock in those low interest rates on their mortgages. We had the stimulus money and the helicopter drops of checks that were given. So even in economic weakness, there's still a lot of money that's going to be pushed through. I mean, we're not stopping spending money on this green transition. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that are going to be pushed through on the economy to drive this green agenda. So, Jim, that's on the commodity side. But, of course, you know, we at our firm don't only just invest in commodities. We do have an exposure there, and we have since 2020 in a number of the different portfolios that we manage. What about some of the other asset classes, whether or not that is on currencies or bonds? You know, Chris, I'm, I'm not a big proponent of bonds right now, and especially as we're going through this rise in interest rates. I mean, you t- take a look at 2022, what happened to bond investors. The 60-40 split did not work between stocks and bonds. Bonds lost over 20%. And I also believe that we're going to be in an inflationary decade. So the problem that you have with a bond, unless you're trading them, like let's say, for example, the Fed pivots next year with economic weakness, and then you might want to go long bonds. But that would be, in my opinion, a trade. It wouldn't be something that you would own long term. Because the way I look at bonds, if we are in this inflationary cycle, which I think is going to remain throughout this decade, especially with fiscal policy now highly inflationary, If I buy a 10-year bond today, let's say I get 4% on a treasury, 10 years from now, that bond is still going to be paying me 4%. It's not going to go up. 
it's not going to change. And more importantly, 10 years from now, when that bond matures, it's not going to have the same purchasing power 10 years in the future as it does today. So we're more inclined, at least I am right now, to keep maturities very short. We've got corporate bonds that go into 2024, where we're making 65 to 6.7%. We've got short-term treasuries where we're making 5%. I think this is a nice place to hide and hedge in terms of what we see as market weakness and economic weakness ahead of us. But other than that, I'm not a big proponent of bonds longer term because I think this will be an inflationary decade, and that's not going to keep you even with inflation 10 years from now, especially if you're a retired person living on income. Your cost of living is going up every year. What are you going to do 10 years from now? If you have a bond and you hold it, let's say you have a 10-year bond or a five-year bond, that that income is not going to change. And that's why I prefer... When it comes to meeting inflationary needs, I prefer blue chip dividend aristocrats because at least I know that my income is going up. The dividend increases are going up anywhere from 6 to 10% a year, sometimes more. So I know if I own a blue chip dividend stock 10 years from now, my income will be probably double where it is today. You know, every asset class has an important role in a portfolio. Commodities do a fairly good job of hedging against inflation, protecting against the weak dollar, and bonds really don't serve to protect you against inflation. They're more protecting you against deflation. That's an economic downturn when interest rates typically fall. And they also provide another function, which is stability. Uh, when you look at the portfolio, uh, you, your stock portion is going to have the greatest amount of volatility along with commodities. But when you're looking at short to intermediate term bonds, they're not going to fluctuate as much as the stock market does. And so that's kind of the, the role that I see right now, Chris, is that we're still in a rising interest rate environment. And that's why we're keeping our maturities very short. And I still, as we mentioned earlier, I still think a recession is lurking out there. And typically in the depth of a recession is when you have defaults on uh, corporate bonds and other types of credit instruments pick up and you have delinquencies rise. And because of that, valuations on bonds, just like the stock market, uh, really improved during the bear market. And so just like I think stocks still have uh, more to go on the downside, my view is the same for corporate bonds. That's why the corporate bonds we do have are very short. Now, if we do have a downturn in the economy and the markets in the back half of the year, that's where I think corporate bonds might get appropriately priced. Right now, I do not think Corporate bonds, especially longer-term corporate bonds, are priced for a recession. I don't think they really provide a good value opportunity. However, uh, back in 2020, we had a lot of cash, and so when um, when the stock market rolled over, when corporate bonds, junk bonds sold off, we were able to take advantage of that. And I think we're going to have another opportunity to be able to extend our maturities and buy uh, bonds at 95 cents on the dollar, even 90 cents on the dollar, if we have a pretty severe sell-off in the back half of the year. So for now, uh, to control the risk of a rising interest rate environment, to control credit risk, our bonds are very short and we have a fair amount of cash and we'll be looking to take advantage of any market dips that occur in the latter part of the year. But bonds in general can provide stability, which is not something that stocks and uh, commodities provide. But again, every asset class serves a purpose. When you look at uh, dividends and the predictability of dividends, they provide stability of income. 
right? And that's one of the advantages that stocks have is in terms of their income profile and stability of dividends when you have high-quality blue-chip companies with strong balance sheets. So you look at your stocks to have a predictability and stability for the income, but in terms of the principal, short-term bonds help to provide the stability from that front. So this is how you can have different asset classes serving the role of, of different functions within the context of an overall portfolio. And so, Jim, you're specifically referencing long-term bonds, so 10-year bonds or, or greater, not short-term bonds. Correct. Like I said, there are times you might want to be in long-term bonds. Like, Chris, let's say that we head into a recession uh, as we get towards the fourth, third and fourth quarter of this year, which I think is going to happen. And then next year, being a presidential election cycle, let's say the unemployment rate rises to 45 to 5%. At some point, if the Fed does begin to pivot and we are in a recession, that you might see a rally in the bond market is long-term bond rates come down. Right now, we're looking at 4% on 10-year treasuries. But it would only be a trade. It would not be something, in other words, I wouldn't buy a 10-year bond and hold it for 10 years. Uh, that would be more of a short-term trade responding to a Fed pivot in an economic downturn, nothing more. And obviously that was a good investment when you think about the 1980s all the way up until, you know, really 2020, where we saw that long-term period of secular disinflation. You know, that was a good time period to own long-term bonds as inflation continued to decrease. But we're now at a secular inflection point where we believe, and as we've been saying on our show ever since 2020, that investors likely want to be prepared for a long-term inflationary environment that may last through the remainder of this decade. That's pretty much, Chris, uh, how we see things playing out. And so, like I said, there's a time you want to be long, but it's more of a trade. We like the short-term end of the market right now. We're getting high yields. And that's, as Chris pointed out, that is providing stability on the capital side, Why the dividend side of the portfolio is providing stability and predictability of income. I would follow up with what Jim said. You know, when you look at the 70s, that was a period of rising inflation and rising interest rates. But there were periods where things got to an extreme point and reversed. So when you look at interest rates, you had a series of higher highs and higher lows. But you also had a period of significant declines in interest rates. For example, Chris, when you look at the 10-year Treasury yield, in 1970, that was around, I would say, about eight and a quarter percent. During the 70-71 recession, it fell to five and a half percent. So during that uh, stint of one year, bonds provided a phenomenal return for investors. Likewise, after the 74-75 recession, and we had a peak in inflation, which was caused by a severe downturn in the economy, again, you had long-term interest rates fall from about eight and a half percent down to around, let's say, 65 6.75%. And then in 1980, we had a huge spike in interest rates and a huge reversal. Uh, the 10-year uh, Treasury went from roughly 14% in 1980, all the way plunging to roughly 9% in 1980. And similarly, between 81 and 82, the 10-year Treasury fell from 16 down to 10. So we had really large spikes in interest rates throughout the decade, However, there were very sizable counter-trend moves in which bonds were able to pack a punch in terms of providing very sharp returns over a short amount of time. So again, um, there's cyclical and then there's secular. There was a secular rise in interest rates and inflation in the 70s. 
However, there were times that bonds did provide very attractive short-term returns. And I think that's an important point because we do have a long-term view and framework that we use to understand the primary trend in various asset classes. But like you pointed out, there are both cyclical, shorter-term factors, and then there are longer-term secular cycles at work. So even though we are still talking about a as we started off today's show, talking about a secular bull market and commodities, there are cyclical counter-trend moves to that, at which times you do want to lower your exposure, especially if you've seen a really big rally in a certain stock or commodity. And then there's a times where there's attractive buying opportunities to increase exposure after a large sell-off within the context of a longer-term cycle. So again, we've been talking real big picture here. Let's boil it down into a little bit more of the near term here. You know, we've seen the ISM manufacturing PMI. It's been in contraction territory since November of 2022. The conference board's leading economic index has also been negative for even longer since July of 2022. And yet on the services side of the economy, so that's where most of economic activities comprises on the services side, that continues to hum along and grow. Do you think there is a chance that we could see, you know, a soft landing, which is a growth deceleration, not resulting in a recession? What odds would you put on that? You know, I, th- I think it's way too soon for people to be discussing a soft landing or even a no landing scenario in which we don't fall in a recession and the economy actually reaccelerates. One of the things, if you've been listening to Powell, you know, one of the things that comes up during the press conferences is the idea of cumulative tightening as well as the lag of monetary policy hitting the economy. And one of the things I did is I took a look at a study. What I wanted to do was look at the date of the first hike by the Fed, the date at which the conference board's LEI turns negative and what that lag was, and then also the lag between the last Fed rate hike when the cycle was done and when the LEI finally troughed to kind of get an idea of historically this lagging uh, impact of Fed policy. And what I found, Chris, was that when you look at the date of the first hike to when the LEI uh, first turns negative, typically you're looking at about two years, you know, roughly 25 months. However, in the current cycle, the first rate hike was March of 22, and the conference board's LEI turned negative in July. So we're talking only four months. That's a fraction of what we normally see. And I think that's more indicative, Chris, of how behind the curve the Fed was, that the economy was already starting to decelerate when the Fed finally started to tighten. Now, when we look at the last Fed rate hike and when the LEI finally troughs, that is roughly 14 months on average or 13, you know, the medium is roughly 13 months. So that's kind of where you hear, Chris, this whole, you know, 12 to 18 month kind of horizon in terms of when the Fed is finally done raising rates and how long it takes to fully impact the economy. So this is a key point I want to bring up. The Fed is not done. They're still raising interest rates. And they've indicated that they're going to continue to raise interest rates and to quote Powell until the job is done. So let's just think about that for a second. If the Fed raises rates through into the middle part of this year, we're talking the middle of 2024 before the conference board's uh, leading economic index bottoms. Now, if the economy continues to decelerate for another year, we should expect corporate earnings to continue to decelerate for another year. So this is why I think it's way too premature to talk about no landing 
uh, in the idea of a soft landing in which we basically have a growth downturn, but not an actual contraction in the general economy. I still think the odds of recession are quite high ahead. Well, given that, Jim, you recently wrote an article, The Ultimate Inflation Hedge Dividends. We posted that on on Financial Sense, and it was also posted on Seeking Alpha as well. It's been getting a lot of traction. Where do dividends, and particularly your larger investment strategy, fit into some of the things that we discussed so far today? You know, Chris, if you take a look at as we refer back to this earlier part of this conversation about dividends providing predictability and stability of income, bonds providing stability of principle. And one of the, I think, mistakes that investors make is they assume when stocks go down, as they did last year, your income goes down if the market goes down. That may be the case if you own a mutual fund or an ETF. Because if the market goes down, investors start liquidating mutual fund shares or ETF shares, it's going to force the portfolio manager to sell off stocks. So you don't know what the dividends are going to be. In contrast, one of the reasons I like dividend-paying blue chips is they're more predictable. If the market goes down, and in my article, I took the last severe downturn that we saw between 2007 in 2009, when the market lost close to 60%. And what I did is I took a couple consumer stocks, Procter & Gamble, Coke, Johnson & Johnson, and Walgreens. And the amazing thing about this, had you not done anything, you didn't look at your brokerage statement or your monthly statement, during probably one of the worst financial crises that we've had since the Great Depression, the dividends on these stocks, Johnson & Johnson raised their dividend 32%. Procter & Gamble's dividend went up 43%. Walgreens' dividend went up 78%. And when the market did turn around and went into a bull market in March of 2009, by the end of the year, your stocks were back to where they started before the bear market began. Coke, which had dropped from $30 a share down to 19 by March of 2009, by the end of the year, Coke was back up to 30. And the reason is when you come out of a recession in a bear market, where is money going to go when it goes back into the market? It's not going to go into speculation. It's not going to go into momentum stocks. It's going to go into quality stocks. And one of the things that I like about this approach is, Chris, I don't know where the S&P is going to be at the end of the year. It could depend on Fed rate hikes. It could depend on whether we're in a recession or not. You know, even some of the best technicians we have in this program have difficulty predicting where they think the market's going to be by year end. But if you take a look at dividends, I have a greater confidence in telling you, I think I know where Coca-Cola's dividend or Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson's dividend is going to be at the end of the year. In one of the things I use in, in the portfolio I manage, I have what I call my 10% dividend rule. Now, I want to contrast that to total return. Total return is dividends plus capital appreciation. Well, I don't know about capital appreciation this year. I'm not very good at predicting where the stock market's going to be at the end of the year. So what I like is taking a look at stocks that have a predictable income stream. And I know with a high degree of confidence, I know where my Coca-Cola dividend is going to be this year, where it's going to be next year. And what I look for in a stock that goes into the portfolio, I call it my dividend 
rule. And I want to contrast that. When I say dividend rule, I, I look for a 10% dividend rule, meaning it's consisting of dividends plus dividend increases. So let's say a stock is paying a 4% dividend, like let's say Chevron, and it, ra it must raise its dividend by 6%. So the combination of the dividend yield plus the dividend increase must equal 10%. And that's the dividend rule. And once again, I want to contrast that to total return. Total return is dividend plus capital appreciation. I'm simply talking about the dividend and the dividend increase. And that's why, Chris, I think it's one of the, the best inflation hedges because even during the financial crisis, had you done nothing, how many people would have loved to see their income go up 30, 40, or 80% during a financial crisis. And that's why uh, that's, this is what I'm doing in our portfolio, along with uh, shorter-term maturities on corporate bonds and treasuries. Again, we've been speaking with Jim Paplava, president of Financial Sense Wealth Management, as well as Chris Paplava, our chief investment officer here. And as we close, would like to point out that Financial Times has ranked Financial Sense Wealth Management as one of the top registered investment advisors in the U.S. We've been in business for over 35 years, navigating and managing through the ups and downs of multiple business cycles. If you'd like to get in contact with any of our advisors or wealth managers here at Financial Sense Wealth Management, you can do so by hitting where it says contact us on financialsense.com or giving us a call at 888-486-3939. In the meantime, on behalf of all of us, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Financial Sense News Hour. Until we all talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk <laughs>